do design decisions involve value judgments? Andy Halliwell has gone and posted this question on LinkedIn as part of our redesigning D&T project and debates. I think this is a really tricky one to answer and our expert group felt that it was an important question that needed debating. Do design decisions involve value judgments? I think firstly, I'd be saying, what do you mean by a value judgment, a values judgment? And maybe in your response to Andy's question, you'll explore what you understand and what your views are of what value judgments are and then whether they actually impinge on or affect the design decisions that designers make and also that children make in D&T lessons. So do join the debate. We're always open to conversation and discussion on this. But for now, on to the next episode. This is the Talking D&T podcast, episode 15. Welcome to the Talking D&T podcast with me, Alison Hardy, a podcast for anybody interested in design and technology education, where I'll be sharing news, views, ideas and opinions about D&T. This week's episode is a little bit different. You won't hear me talking or chatting with anybody else about an issue or a topic in design and technology. This week, it's Eddie Norman talking about whether designers actually know anything. It's part of our series of episodes where we're sharing some of the outcomes and our thoughts from conversations we've been having over the last couple of years about knowledge, skills and values in design and technology. I was privileged to work in what is now Loughborough Design School for 28 years. And I could watch the students learning as they moved through the degree programmes. It seems to me an odd thing to say, and it, sh- it should be self-evident, but the second-year students were better designers than the first-year students and still looked up to the finalists, wondering whether they would ever be able to reach those standards. Of course, they did every year, but it wasn't either through gaining a better understanding of A or the design process or processes or improving their ability to apply what they'd learnt from other disciplines. Again, this should be self-evident, but seems to need saying. The design students knew more about design and designing as they progressed through the teaching and learning programmes. Loughborough Design School did not teach A or the design process or processes at any point, as far as I know. Students were taught modelling techniques in different areas and when these might prove useful. Modelling through drawing, prototyping, investigating the user experience, etc., both through design practice and dedicated modules, such as drawing for design. It was always interesting to note the difficulties that many students had in articulating what it was that they had learnt. But you only had to look at their portfolios or attend the degree show to see it. Employers recognised the value of the design school graduates and they were amongst the most employable on the campus. So why is it so difficult to articulate what designers know and how they know it, i.e. to explain design epistemology? There are many reasons, and one of the more problematic is that design knowledge can be regarded as both hard and soft, to use current descriptors. This has been long understood, and to quote one source, the late Professor Geoffrey Harrison, this is what he said in introducing his project, The Continuum of Design Education for Engineering which was completed for the Engineering Council and the Engineering Employers Federation in the early 2000s. Engineering is a universal experience. Since the beginning, our environment, the tools we use and the artefacts and systems we depend on 
have evolved and have been designed, improved and crafted, engineered by men and women drawing on the accumulated knowledge of previous generations, as well as on their own observations and their own tacit or intuitive understanding. From earliest childhood, this unarticulated knowledge and understanding is observable, and we know that it can be stimulated and developed. Capability in engineering and engineering design depends upon the creative use of both the scientific articulate and the intuitive tacit forms of knowledge. Universal education for a technological society must cultivate both forms of knowledge and understanding more systematically than at present. It should support the process whereby as learners we progress from one form of understanding to the other, from tacitly understanding that something works, the use it stage, to articulating how and why something works, the explain it stage. Design areas lie on a spectrum and engage with different proportions of scientific articulate and intuitive tacit forms of knowledge or hard and soft forms of knowledge. Industrial design requires greater understanding of visual and human factors amongst many other areas and hence greater engagement with the intuitive tacit forms of knowledge. There is also the additional difficulty that Janet Daly noted in the 1980s that some of these intuitive tacit forms have not been articulated yet because they cannot be articulated. They can be expressed and understood in other ways such as through visual languages or artefacts but they are not expressible in natural languages. The pattern recognition capabilities of the human brain can allow schemata to be created that lie outside of those related to natural language. However, experienced eyes looking through students' portfolios would have little difficulty in discerning what the students have learnt. Consider engineering drawing, which is often believed to be a relatively mundane skill. The use of scale drawings dates back to earlier human history, with its uses in architecture, landscape design and shipbuilding, for example. But engineering drawing evolved in parallel with the Industrial Revolution. In his book, Design Methods, Seeds of Human Futures, which was published in 1970, J. Christopher Jones analysed the emergence of engineering drawing and discussed the economic factors that were at play during its evolution. He also introduced the concept of the enhanced perceptual span that engineering drawing enabled. Engineering drawings facilitated the division of labour between people and places and it made it possible to plan the manufacture of things that were too large for a single craftsman to make. New production strategies could be developed, and the speed of production could be increased. However, beyond these economic factors, the enhanced perceptual span that engineering drawing gave the designer enabled them to investigate the design with greater freedom. As J. Christopher Jones said, the designer can, by the use of drawing, see and manipulate the design as a whole and is not prevented, either by partial knowledge or by the high cost of altering the product itself, from making fairly drastic changes in design. Using his ruler and compasses, he can rapidly plot the trajectories of moving parts and predict the repercussions that changing the shape of one part will have upon the design as a whole. In the introduction to the Art of the Engineer exhibition in 1978, Ken Baines and Francis Pugh further acknowledge the multiple roles of the engineering drawing as follows. Jones concentrates on the significance of engineering drawings for design and for production control. 
They were also means for communicating ideas and they even became symbols of industrial prestige. As a result, it is difficult to ascribe a single function to any particular drawing. Engineering drawings had roles to play in marketing and sales as much as design and production. If you are teaching engineering drawing, you are not teaching a mundane skill, but enabling design students to enhance their perceptual span, as well as contributing to production and marketing. The majority of Loughborough's design students went out on placement in companies after their second year and their ability in engineering drawing was one of the keys for them being able to make immediate contributions. Whilst I was at Loughborough, the engineering drawing modules were led by Sid Pace, who maintained exacting standards. With the advent of CAD, the ways in which drawing can enhance the designer's perceptual span have continued to evolve, and if you've not done so already, it's worth downloading the ID cards that were developed by Dr Mark Evans from Dr Eugene Pay's PhD research. They can be downloaded from Loughborough University's website and are also available as an app. Their development has been supported by many design organisations such as the Industrial Designers Society of America, the German Design Council, the British Industrial Design Association, Design Denmark, the Design Institute of Australia and the Brazilian Association of Designers. The ID cards show 16 2D and 16 3D methods of design representation. They explain the purposes of these modelling methods and when they might be used. There's no doubt in my mind that designers who have mastered these 32 methods have the potential to greatly enhance their perceptual span if they use them effectively, and that designers do actually know something. You've been listening to the Talking D&T podcast with me, Alison Hardy. You can connect with me on Twitter at Hardy underscore Alison. Show notes and transcripts for each podcast episode can be found on my website, alisonhardy.work. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.